0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? Right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast strives to bring you the latest updates in many areas of medicine from the top specialists. Now, of course, we have to have a disclaimer. This podcast is for educational purposes only, and it's not intended as personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional. Today's podcast topic is autism, a condition that seems to still bewilder the medical community. And we're really struggling with how do we care for these patients? And even as these patients become adults, one in 44 children today are born autistic. And I have to admit that even in my practice, when I see my pediatric patients that have autism, whether I'm seeing them for food or environmental allergies, which I'm treating them for, I find it challenging to make that connection with them. And I, you know, again, when I see pediatric patients, I like to talk to the patient. I don't like to exclude them and just talk to the parents. But it, again, as I said, I find it challenging. The other concern, and really the elephant in the room, is that for a long time, the cause of autism has been a mystery for a period of time vaccines were thought to be uh, a possible cause but that's been pretty much debunked um there's still a lot of other um unclear and possibly erroneous uh theories as to why autism uh is increasing and uh hopefully we'll get more information about that and I, and I think also the last thing i hopefully will get to today is that How can we best care for these children? How can we give them the right treatments, the right home environment to help them grow and ultimately grow and have the best quality of life possible? I am so fortunate today to have Dr. Cheryl Klayman. She is a PhD psychologist with training from McGill University in Canada. That's the Harvard of Canada Um, and Yale Child Study Center. She is also the director for the assessment and diagnostic program at the Marcus Autism Center In Atlanta, Georgia. So I'm so pleased to have Dr. Cheryl Clayman on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here.
0: Okay. I have to say one thing before we get started, too, about the Marcus Center. I don't know a lot about it, but what I did find out was from listening to another podcast, and I have the book here from Bernie Marcus, his book called Pick Up <laughs> yeah. Some Dust. He is one incredible guy. And he you know, when know. you, I didn't really know much about him. I actually knew a little bit more about the other, uh, Ken Langone, because his name is all over New York. You know, he, uh, yeah. the hospital in New York is named after him. He also is a tremendous person. And both of these people, not only are they tremendous business people, but they are very philanthropic, as is uh, Mr. Marcus. I mean, and he's he get and he's part of the the giving pledge and um, and obviously opening up this center. Which I it's funny I was flipping through the book last night. So I was wondering why did he get involved with autism, mm-hmm. and it was really because uh, one of his employees. Yeah. Uh, daughter had it and you know was beside herself and couldn't get proper care so it it just shows how remarkable he is so anyway that I thought it was really important to mention so it truly
1: is and his initial center if we want to call it that grew from kind of some trailers Mm -hmm. in a backyard to being you know a huge center that there's thousands and thousands of kids every single year now.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Dr. claim I usually like to ask all my, my guests, because out had a personal interest, and I hope the listeners enjoy it as well, too. How did you decide to go into this area?
1: Um, sure. It was a circuitous journey, probably like it is for many people. Um, but I was in an undergrad psych department at McGill University, and I was in an abnormal psychology practicum class. So I had to do a practicum somewhere, and they pulled their names from a hat. And when your name got pulled, you got to choose your practicum placement. And so, of course, like all, you know, wannabe psych students, I thought schizophrenia and being in the inpatient psych wards would be the ultimate kind of practicum experience. But my name got chose last. And so I ended up in a classroom for children with autism. And despite at first being a bit disappointed by being more in a classroom type setting, these children just opened my heart, gave me just so much kind of more questions that were being asked for myself of just, you know, what makes them be so individual? What gives them all these strengths? What makes them have difficulties with communication? So I just fell in love and pursued a graduate program following that.
0: Okay. Well, that's pretty interesting. Okay. So I want to go through before we get into some other areas. So sort of some general truths and misconceptions about autism. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I believe the prevalence now of autism is one in forty-four children, and I, I, I guess I assume that's either worldwide or in Western. It's
1: country. a little bit lower world. Uh, it's a little bit lower worldwide. So the global rates are slightly lower than.
0: Okay, the US. so I want to ask you because I've done also a lot of stuff with autoimmunity on this podcast. So two questions, two part question. Is it true that the the prevalence of autism is increasing, or are we just getting better at recognizing it? And is there a difference between um, You know, Western, more affluent countries versus third world countries with, uh, you know, the prevalence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the rate has certainly been going up over time. In like 2000, it was one in 54. I'm um, sorry, one in 150. And then in 2016, oh, wow. it was one in 54. And now it's at one in 44. Globally, it's about one in 100. And we certainly have more information on more affluent countries um, than we do in other countries. Um, There's a lot of reasons why we think the rates might be going up. Part of it is that our diagnostic criteria has certainly broadened. Um, We also feel like we're better at identifying more of the spectrum. So even though the criteria have broadened, the kids that are at those more edges, they're certainly struggling and we want to make sure we're providing them services and support so they can live to their potentials. Um, we do also know we've had some diagnostic substitution. So the rates of intellectual disability, for example, have gone down as rates of autism have gone up. Uh, we know kids with autism typically are able to get a lot of services, uh, with a diagnosis. So that's also helpful for the diagnosis can be helpful for them in that regard. Okay. Globally, um, it is lower. It's going up as well. Um, as we're also starting to get more information from other countries, there's not really any reason to expect that it would be different. Across countries.
0: Okay, now as I mentioned also in the introduction, you know, for a long time there was fear among uh, the parental community that vaccines were contributing to autism. Uh, You know, there was unfortunately that I forgot the name of the uh, the doctor, the researcher, who was after vilified for like fudging Mm -hmm. data. You know that somehow connected the me. I think the measles vaccine or the MMR vaccine with uh, autism. Yeah. But at this point in time, and you guys being at the center, are there any um, sort of verifiable risk factors such as whether it's a mother's age? environmental yeah. toxins, anything. Sometimes I've even seen two, which kind of really blows me away is that sometimes there's a multiple children in a family. Right. So.
1: So, yeah. So, I mean, it was the Andrew Wakefield who right. study or mm-hmm. made the implication that vaccines caused autism. And that paper was retracted from the Lancet many years ago now, but still millions of dollars have poured in to try and show that vaccines possibly could or could not cause autism. And it's unrefutable at this point that vaccines are not the cause of autism. Um, but that being said, there does seem to be a very heavy genetic factor. Um, so as you said- all, There's a genetic component to it. What that is, we still don't have all the answers to either, but we know that there's a significant degree of heritability from all the twin studies that have been done. So uh-huh. if you have one child with autism who's a twin, monozygotic rate, so identical twin rates, are significantly higher than fraternal. Oh, that's identical twin rates. Okay. Um, and then we do see different kind of signs and symptoms that pass through a family, probably because of some of the genes that might be implicated or not in family members. So we know that there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of genes that could be involved. It's still only explaining a pretty small proportion, but part of that is also our understanding of genetics, that um, there also does seem to be some environmental components, and we're still learning a lot about that. So we know there's increased prevalence rates in babies that are born premature or with congenital heart disease. We know that there's increased rate um, when a parent gets older, but that goes for all sorts of neurodevelopmental was I, not okay, I wasn't doctors, sure.
0: Um, yeah, so um, increase, if a parent yeah. came, if a parent comes to you the same way, look they they get you know, in certain ethnic backgrounds, let's say in Jewish backgrounds, they get screened for certain
1: exactly you yeah.
0: know uh, diseases that are more common in let's say Ashkenazi Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure in every area there is there's, there's a lot more genetic counseling. But if a uh, if a young family comes to you, is there any way of advising them or Making any yeah. giving them any more comfort, so if, if you you know you look seem like a, a low risk for having an autistic child, not really, not
1: really. I mean, so we yeah. know that. So with the rates of one in forty-four, for example, we know that it's about twenty percent increased likelihood of having autism if you have a one other child on the autism spectrum. Oh, is already.
0: that right? I'm sorry. What is it? One in twenty.
1: It's about twenty percent increase risk. Okay, that's our current prevalence rates. A lot of us in various research centers now are trying to get ready to relook at those recurrence rates. Cause that study was from 2011. Um, but we do know that there's regardless an increased likelihood given that genetic component. Right. Is
0: there any difference between male and female too or no?
1: Yeah. We're still learning a lot about that right now. Autism is about, four to one males to females, so oh, males wow. are more likely to be diagnosed with autism, but we are still trying to really understand a girl phenotype. So our diagnostic manuals have been based more on kind of male phenotype or male characteristics rather than female characteristics. So there are some things we know. it's probably still going to be more prevalent in males. When females do have autism, they are more likely to have intellectual disabilities. so thinking about, things like the protective factors that might've been protective in a female or when they're not protecting you, you're gonna get a bigger hit, uh, if that makes sense.
0: Okay. Um, Again, please excuse any of the questions I have because I I really don't know so much about this area. Now, what differentiates a child that, when they're very young, one that's just very introverted or if you wanna call antisocial or extremely anxious from an autistic child, is there, any Anything a parent should be on the lookout
1: for? Sure. Yeah. and so you know autism diagnoses are made by a mix of observations, So we're going to do direct assessment with a child as well as parent history. And so it's really, really important, particularly when you have a very anxious child that you're getting information from the parent about what they're like in different settings. So lots of times kids that are anxious, for example, might be more anxious in some settings than in others. And when they're not anxious, what do their social behaviors look like? And so we want to be teasing that apart to make as accurate a diagnosis as we can. We don't have any blood tests that are going to be more definitive It's just behavioral observations and interviewing. So it's a lot of careful observation. So kids who might have anxiety, for example, they might have reduced eye contact, similar to kids with autism who might
0: have right. Because I mean, just contact, just to right? give an example too. Like again, when I see children, that come to me and I try to put them at ease the best that I can. Of course, they're very nervous. I mean, the underlying right. question is, am I getting a shot? Yeah. <laughs> so I try to put them to, at ease right away because in my practice we don't really we don't do shots, but. It's interesting because a lot of times they'll come in and they're not making eye contact. They're probably, if they have a an iPad or something or some kind of game, they're playing that, you know, right. and, you know, obviously these are things that, you know, with autistic children is the way they would, you know, sometimes initially interact where, again, you know, you know, in the, in the fifties, a parent would yell at their kid, stand up straight, look at, right. you know, look at who's talking to you, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So. Um, yeah,
1: it's it's different. You just want to get a sense of is this unique to this specific situation, or is it more generalized across all settings that mm-hmm. the child is in? Mm-hmm. I know this will mean
0: to stereotype, but what are the intelligent ranges with children with autism? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, again, sometimes you know we see the movies like you know uh, Rain Man with Dustin mm-hmm. Hoffman, you know they're they're wild geniuses. Or I've seen on mm-hmm. sixty Minutes some of them like are incredible musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe not everybody's a genius, you know, I, I don't know. What is, is there just a wide range? Is it, um, is there something that's pretty typical?
1: No. So autism really is marked by a huge amount of heterogeneity and about 35% of individuals or so now probably have a co-occurring intellectual disability with the other 75% or 65 Mm -hmm. to 70% kind of ranging through to the average to well above average range. Savant skills, like we see in Rain Man, and mm-hmm. you know some of the piano players and the drawers and things like that, is um, a small percentage of the autism spectrum, but it's certainly pretty prevalent. Yeah. Compared to other kind of. Uh, how
0: disorders. are the How are the autistic children in regards to uh, touch? Um, are they selective who can touch them? Are they uncomfortable for anybody touching them? I mean, I is
1: it, cause, I'd do say I, it, yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead.
0: No, what I was going to say was that uh, actually a few of the patients' parents that I've met. First of all, they're incredible parents. I mean, beyond. I mean, sometimes God was looking out for these children because they, fortunately, were born into into the right family. Right. Um, And I watch them sometimes, and a lot of them are loving and you know um, affectionate to the children, even in the exam room, to try to calm them down. But I, I also sort of get the impression sometimes that these children don't want to be touched. I don't know if it makes them uncomfortable. Uh, I didn't know if that's just obviously from, you know, um, a healthcare person versus their own family or siblings. How does, how does that yeah. work?
1: I mean, so I think that falls under the domain of sensory sensitivity. So some of our kids have different sensory sensitivities and sometimes it might be to touch. Sometimes it's to smell, sometimes it's the sound. It can be to almost anything, mm-hmm. but other kids are sensory seeking, and they're really, trying to reach out for that touch and um, constantly pushing in. So it can kind of go the full gamut, but I would think about a little bit more as their um, sensory system is a little bit different. And, you know, for some touch might be more, I don't want to say painful, but it might be more heightened and feel different than it might be for others of us that have a different threshold. So
0: you really have to you have to decide, and that's something you as clinicians do to try. Because yeah. I'm sure we're going to get into this. How to how does a family deal with this? I Meaning, this is not you know it affects a family you know oh, for sure. siblings, parents, and causes. I'm sure also a lot of strain in marriages and families mm-hmm. as ever, you know as the child maybe need more attention and um, okay. Yeah, sure. Let's let's talk, let's talk about diagnosing autism. And you have at the Marcus Autism Center website, you know, the uh, the early milestones. And I believe I read somewhere too that most of the children are diagnosed between ages two and three, where it becomes more apparent. Is that correct? So,
1: nice. so yeah, so most of the time, parents are concerned. Ninety percent of parents are concerned by the time their child is two years of age. The symptoms tend to be there. Parents become concerned, but then it can take them a long time to get into specialty centers. So at the Marcus Autism Center, for example, uh, we try as much as possible to bring these young kids in as early as parents are concerned, because you know we know that earlier diagnosis is better for earlier you know, prognosis for, or for prognosis in general, we can get them into early interventions. but the average age of diagnosis in the United States is only about four, like four years, three months. And then it's even later in more disadvantaged community. So wow.
0: um,
1: we do our best to bring kids in between two and three. That's kind of our specialty. Uh, so as soon as parents are concerned. Mm-hmm.
0: Do any of the milestones um i know there's there's really a list i mean at each one whether it's 9 months a year 18 months you know there's like six bullet points for each one are uh, there certain ones that really are very glaring you know that should really make a a parent pay attention
1: i mean i think anytime your parental instinct is going off you should be bringing your concerns to the pediatrician and mm-hmm. it's always in our opinion better be conservative and refer for evaluation so we can do a more thorough look at your child. But if your child is not, is very, very quiet um, and they are not developing language, but even the pre-language skills like babbling, that's an important indicator. Language and communication is kind of some of the very first concerns and reason to be concerned. Um, If your child is very, very content to play independently. Children should be needing their parents and pulling out. And so, if you feel like you can get away for hours and your child's not calling your attention and they're playing independently, that's pretty concerning. Really. So at those yeah. younger ages, and obviously developmentally, it all changes as you get.
0: How how good is making the diagnosis and again i know your center is very specialized let's just say by the typical i don't know if it's, is it a pediatrician or a uh i mean who's the kind of specialist let's say here in new york a parent is concerned that uh, you know my child's not talking or not you know standing up or just you know, again some of these milestones are not being reached um who do they go to and how good are the because again i'm sure to a parent does not want to have their child diagnosed diagnosed as autistic when there's a 50-50 chance they're not? So right. how do you? Uh, who do they go to? And how how confident is a good practitioner in making the diagnosis even at a young age like that? You're saying before the four years.
1: Oh yeah, so we say any concern, bring it to your pediatrician. Pediatricians should be doing based on the American Academy of Pediatric guidelines should be doing regular screening tests. And those screening tests should be kind of more broad developmental based as well as autism specific. And so if you have any concerns, bring it. Hopefully you're getting the checklists that are marking off any concerns. And then hopefully the pediatrician is making referrals. Um, and who would they refer
0: do... to? Who would they refer to? Yeah. Typically? So
1: there's lots of people. So there's autism specialty centers like Marcus.
0: There are. Um, there, are the ones, there are the ones throughout the country.
1: There's yeah. throughout the country. So there's a bunch of okay. New York and stuff as well. Um, but also neurologists, psychiatrists, developmental pediatricians, there's lots of people and we're trying to enable more and more pediatricians to feel comfortable making the diagnosis because the waits can be very long to get into the specialty centers. Okay. And then you would ask another question. Now I'm blanking on what that No, it's that one,
0: okay. Right? But have about look into, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you'll hear this, like if a parent goes in, you know, gets really concerned, their child's not talking, <laughs> you know, maybe, I don't know, when, when are you supposed to start speaking? Like, uh, Yeah,
1: you I mean, should have your first words by about 12 months or so of age. You
0: should, so your first year. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's say sometimes a child does not. Yeah. What, what's the, you know, again, what's the percentage or likelihood that they are autistic? Is that possible to say? I mean,
1: about... have developmental delays Mm -hmm. and about 10% or so of that 10% we're going to have autism. And so we think that even if your child is not talking and it's not autism, early intervention is beneficial. And there's federal mandates for early intervention services. So even if the pediatrician is not necessarily concerned about autism, but language is delayed, um, we recommend sending to all the birth to three programs that are around the country And so every state has a slightly different name for it, but there's, they're all the early intervention birth to three programs. And then if those providers continue to have concerns potentially about autism, then they can also make the referrals to the specialty center.
0: You know, in something like this too, would you recommend, you know, that someone get probably at least two opinions, you know, um, well, not necessary.
1: Not necessarily. I mean, our wait for specialty centers can be so long that if everybody starts getting second opinions, then, we're bogging things down even further. I'd rather, if there's concern, get a child into intervention and then follow that child over time so we can monitor the diagnosis. The treatments we have are developmental, right? We're gonna be trying to promote a child's communication skills, trying to promote their social skills. Truly any child can benefit from- Okay,
0: no, no, it does sound great. Actually, I was gonna move into that about treatment. So can you give us some examples? Like what what would you do for a child diagnosed at three years old with autism, what might be some examples of things that yeah. at the center you guys do?
1: Sure. And it's going to depend on an individual child's profile, which is why we like assessments. So we can learn about what their strengths and weaknesses are and target interventions accordingly. Okay. But if we had a three or a four-year-old that came and they were not yet speaking and they were not um, able to have some learning readiness skills, we typically recommend more behavioral type approaches like applied behavior analysis, which is breaking skills down to their components and then teaching back up the skills. And ABA is one of the most
0: What's ABA? Of prevalent
1: yeah, applied behavioral analysis. okay So it's a treatment technique and there's lots of ABA programs that are out there. At younger ages, we tend to think about uh, more naturalistic measures. We don't want a two-year-old to sit at a table and look at you know cards all day. We want them to be playing with toys and teaching those play skills.
0: Are they typically um, one-on-one with a, um, you know, with a provider or is, are they sometimes in a group and is that, is yeah. that encouraged? No, no, what?
1: I mean, it runs all over the place. Oh, it does. Um, so if a child uh-huh. can benefit and they're decent imitators, I tend to recommend being in more group settings because they're, you learn vicariously through watching others. So mm. if you're a decent imitator, I want you to also be seeing what other kids your age are doing and hopefully imitating those skills.
0: It seems also too that sometimes children with autism they more than the average child today who are very addicted to uh, you know video games and you know the computer is that something that they seem to gravitate more to or is that just again a stereotype you know because they. Yeah.
1: I think it's more of a stereo. I mean, I think so many kids these days are gravitating towards all these yeah. devices.
0: I, I can't stuff. remember the last, it's very hard. I think I uh, can't remember the last uh, child that came into my office, you know, for a, you know, treatment for food allergies or environment that didn't have like an iPad or wasn't playing a video right. game. <laughs> well, while they're the way toy, you right? yes, yeah Yes, exactly. I used to have your stuffed animal.
1: <laughs> right. Now we got, now we got screens. Um, but I think like any child, you know, what's, what's important to learn is what they, what drives them, right? So some kids, it's certainly going to be more of the screen stuff and maybe that's more comfortable to engage with people through a screen, but other pe- kids it might be, you know, I really like trains and having a toy train might be more mm-hmm. appealing mm-hmm. to them or cars or
0: mm-hmm. dolls
1: or whatever it might be, but learning what their kind of interest is, it's my one way, one way you might be able to kind of get into them and bond with them a little bit easier.
0: What about diet? Are they very, again, I know this is a little bit of generality, are they more picky about their diet, you know, again, because sensitivity to foods? Have there been yeah. shown to be any diets that, you know, across the board are a little bit more accepted by the autistic children?
1: So our kids tend to be, so the majority of individuals with autism tend to be very picky eaters with mm-hmm. lots of them uh, limiting sometimes to even one food group. So, we do have a lot of dietary concerns, and it is recommended that all kids, once you get a diagnosis, also have a nutrition screen just to make sure they're meeting their nutritional needs. Um, Our kids tend to be very much on that orange diet. So, things like goldfish crackers, Cheetos, um, the the orange diet. (laughs)
0: Oh, Um, it's orange. They like, okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Orange color. So, anything that's kind of crunchy. Very mm-hmm. consistently tasting food. So fruits and vegetables can be hard because an apple one day might have a different taste or texture another day. Oh, I see. Uh, um, and that's not structured or consistent enough for some of our kids. Um, it, we want we do watch diet closely. We've had some diagnoses of scurvy at our center because kids were so restricted in the food that they ate.
0: Oh, oh so this is important. Mm-hmm. And, and what about exercise? Are the children encouraged to try to exercise? Is there anything that, again, you, you tend to find with families that children will accept to do, You know whether it's running or... Because mm-hmm. you know, I can imagine some things are hard. I'm not sure if their coordination is more difficult you know so again mm-hmm. a sport like tennis or
1: yeah so some of our harder. kids definitely have more like lower tone so mm-hmm. um exercise can be more challenging but it's also extremely important just like it is for any kid but um sometimes team sports can be harder just because of the whole social nuance that takes place with engaging in a team but we recommend it because you can learn so much from being in a team. But some of our kids do better at sports like tennis or swimming or um, running or you know, some of the martial art type sports that you can do really well with as well.
0: Do, do they have trouble following instructions? I mean, cause I, that, you know, um, I, again, it's really funny. You're bringing up the point. I remember there was, I think one boy that was on TV once, you know, cause they, he was a football player, which was just, it was really impressive. I mean, you know, And, you know, with football, you got to follow a lot of instructions and teamwork and everything, too. Um, But I I get the sense because, again, there's this problem in communication. Is that, you know, are they better off on sort of individual exercise activities versus a team or just depends? I
1: mean, not necessarily. Sometimes what the struggle is with our communication style is that our individuals with autism can be much more literal. So if we start talking in some of sarcasm or using different tones to express ourselves, that can be much more challenging for our individuals. And so if you really want them to get something, we recommend more concrete, We recommend being direct um, so that they know what we're getting at because sometimes just reading all those other social cues is what becomes really challenging.
0: What's the goal? I mean, I'm sure, that again, too, this is one of the biggest fears for any parent. You know, they have a child that has autism, but, you know, the parent says in their 30s, maybe early 40s, and they worry what happens when they're older, if they're physically not able to care for the child, if they're not alive. What is the ultimate sort of sequence of I don't know the game plan to to help these children that can as adults can live a very long life.
1: Right. Yeah, there's nothing unhealthy, right? They're right. not medically that. I mean, they're on a cardiovascular
0: disease right. or, or anything like that. So, I mean, they could clearly outlive their parents. Right. And, and it's, now, yeah. You know, so how it's is a that a huge fear? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a huge fear for the parent. Yeah. And um you know, and and not obviously too, it's very challenging. You know, to find you know, you know, again, someone else who's not the parent to take over the care um, of even an adult that requires a lot of right uh, intervention.
1: And it's probably different across the spectrum. So, individuals like parents of um, profoundly autistic individuals obviously worry a whole lot more than those who have um, more cognitive capabilities and communication skills, really most importantly, right? If you can communicate, you can usually kind of get along more in our world. Um, And so there's very, there's vast differences, Um, but what we really want to make sure individuals are living to their fullest potential, right? So um, we want to make sure not only are we caring for, you know, the, teaching all the social skills and the communication skills. We want to be reducing any possible behaviors that we have if they're aggressive or, or whatnot. Um, but we also want to make sure we're targeting what we call adaptive skills. So those daily life skills that are the ones that tend to get in the way of a child or an adult living to their fullest potential. Um, so if you can do a really great at computer programming, but you can't do a job interview or you can't show up to work on time or you can't work well with your colleagues or Mm -hmm. anything like that, you're not going to be holding down jobs as successfully as someone who has those skills. So we need to make sure throughout all of the intervention programming that we're also monitoring those adaptive behavior skills. Our individuals that are academically talented, um, cognitively more able, they tend to go into mainstream academic programs, which is fantastic, But mainstream academic programs are typically not making sure, you know, you can tie your shoes or, you know, you have good hygiene and things like that, that they might be thinking of in more programs that are teaching more functional life skills. And so for all of our individuals with autism, we want to make sure that we're teaching these life skills so that they can be as successful to their potential.
0: How Let's say someone lives in the uh, Atlanta area and they're diagnosed with autism by the Marcus Center. How long will they be treated there? I mean, for years?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we can treat people up through the age of 21, and then we work on transition programming uh, uh-huh. to find more adult care.
0: And is it the goal and the hope that, that these uh, patients can, will be able to live independently and possibly even earn a living?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For like, again, for the majority of individuals who don't have more profound autism, they should be having optimal outcomes. They should be, you know, living independently, holding down jobs, earning income. Um, And they can, they can
0: drive a car, you know, I mean, hopefully. And yeah.
1: Yeah. There's no reason why they can't. Right. So unless there is something, so maybe just like for anybody else, maybe, Co-occurring conditions like well, ADHD I, I guess I, getting I guess way, right? or, but,
0: but I know, but I guess like something like driving a car takes a lot of, you know, you don't even think about it unconscious um, awareness of your surroundings, you know, people crossing the road or stop signs, you know, and, you know, there's the stress of, you know, people might cut in front of you, that type of thing. Right. So um, is there any special? Yeah. Needs as far as that. I mean, hopefully in the future with autonomous cars, we won't have to worry about that. Which <laughs> right. I think for elderly and anyone with disability, it is. Uh, it's a whole game changer. But oh, for sure. Until that time, I mean, I you know, I knew I have a relative that has uh, some form of autism, and uh, he does drive. He works in a family business. I mean, he's had a very yeah. productive life. Uh, but it's he's lucky. He's, he's had a, he has a wonderful family. That's really been behind him, you know.
1: Well, one of our friends who has a son with autism drives for DoorDash, right? Really? Oh, yeah. So there's lots of, there's lots of, I I wouldn't put any possibilities past individuals, um, but we might need to break things down. Maybe, you know, I'd love to take advantage more of um, the augmented reality, virtual reality Mm. type tools so we can Mm -hmm. put them in these situations and teach them what might need to happen if the unexpected happens, which is usually what throws everybody off but our individuals with autism more so
0: is there anything on the horizon as far as you know medical treatments you know uh, whether it's um i I've, I've been at some meetings when there's interest about the microbiome and believe mm-hmm. it or not there was something with a fecal transplant i don't want to get yeah. to i get false hope about anything but i was Can at a we meet- do that too Yeah. <laughs> do you do that there because i was at a not meeting-
1: at marcus
0: yeah i was at a meeting once but it was actually david David Perlmutter. Yeah. He's a very, he yeah. wrote Grain Brain. A lot. He's a neurologist. that was based mm-hmm. out of Florida and he's holistic. And, you know, I, I think a very reputable person and I'll never forget this lecture that he gave. He showed uh, a picture, a, a video of, uh, it was like a 13 year old boy that had autism and it just showed he just wasn't interacting, whatever. And then he, put up a subsequent video that showed, you know, again, around the same age, that same uh, youngster really engaged and doing so much better. And he Mm -hmm. said the difference was, you know, a fecal transplant. Now, I I don't think he was trying to make a blanket statement. This is going to cure everybody, but it was pretty traumatic. I mean, and so I just was wondering at a a place like, you know, your center world-class, if any type of things, you know, medically are being, Looked at, you know, to try to see if it uh, can improve the quality of life for these children.
1: Yes, I mean we're doing tons of research. More, a lot of our research focuses on more earlier ways of identif- identifying children mm-hmm. um, and better kind of screening tools to get children into earlier intervention. Mm-hmm. I think some of those other studies um, need a ton more replication. Um, mm-hmm. We won't. I mean, we'll do studies but we won't promote treatments that are not empirically validated, particularly if they come with any.
0: But will will, will the market center like participate? Let's say if a, a center that was saying, look, we're, you know, I remember reading once too, again, this is out there, but there was, there was, I don't know if it was a study, whatever they found that the, um, the, the gastric hormone, I think it was called secretin. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was originally being, for some reason, it was being used for a different reason. I mean, maybe in diagnostic pur- uh, purposes. And it seemed to help these kids with autism. So it was like sort mm-hmm. of a, you know, an accidental, incidental finding. Um, has there been anything on that horizon that you're aware of or it didn't pan out?
1: Yeah, it didn't. That one, from my understanding, they put... Yeah you know, tons of dollars into it and it didn't go anywhere. Oh, really? There's been lots mm. of other trials looking at meds like that that have not really, you know, if there's been some improvement, either it hasn't been sustained over time or it hasn't made significant improvement that the side effect profile was worth it. Um,
0: okay.
1: So nothing that I've seen, I'm not up to date on everything, obviously. No, it's I know. I just was I've curious what
0: was going on. In the center. By the way, too, do they do MRIs typically on these children just to, to see? No. Yeah.
1: Not typically, we're doing tons of research on MRIs at our center to try and look at brain differences and connections in different areas of the brain and do they map on to when in social development we'd expect something to be coming online. Um, But at an individual level, it's not like differentially diagnosing children. We know that there's group differences between different brain structures or different brain function, um, but not at the individual level, at least not yet
0: okay uh so dr clayman i guess my last question to you is what would you say to a parent out there that you know recently finds out that their child is autistic um and uh, and, the, and the maybe hopefully the best way forward to you know to prepare to help their child and their family
1: yeah i mean What I would say is that your child is still the same child, and now we know kind of a path forward. So let's start working to get interventions in place. Don't put any presumptions on what they can or can't do at this point. But let's start getting them into intervention, targeting their strengths and weaknesses so that we can um, help them live to their potential. Um, So let's not put any limitations. Let's start getting them into services um, and monitor their development so we can kind of help them live to be their best selves.
0: Would you uh, also recommend, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, about you know, utilizing the services of their pediatrician and possibly other specialists, but is there a site, like I know there's the Autism Speaks movement, mm-hmm. um, like where they can get, you know, parents, as I said, they're the greatest advocates for their children, you know, Absolutely. God bless them. And, you know, a lot of times too, they will go anywhere, do anything to get the best help for their child what would that be the resource or are there are other ones what you would recommend?
1: No, autism speaks is great. And they have these toolkits on there. So one of them, if you're newly diagnosed, it's called the first 100 days kit. And I think it just helps you get a plan in place, right? It can be overwhelming. You're going to Google autism and get millions of search hits up there. Um, so tools like the first 100 days kit can really be like, okay, what should I do first? Then next, how do I go about getting services? What do I even do? um but use your centers at uh, marcus autism center we're here for families we want to make sure that they know what those next steps are i always hate to hear you know three six months a year later families come in and they haven't really done anything just because they've been too overwhelmed and right, So we want right, to try and take that overwhelm away
0: do you also recommend a lot of times too that families do some type of family therapy you know, because there's just so many things going on, you know, to, to, you know, get that you have other children um, and um, you know, the stress on their own marriage, you know, all these things, you know, to help them.
1: Yeah. So we definitely recommend finding support, whether that's family therapy, couples therapy, your own therapy, um, Mm -hmm. in order to help you um, understand and move to the next steps and be as effective as you can for yourself and for your, for your, your whole family, right? It's, it's Mm -hmm. definitely a different journey. It can be a hard journey, um, but it takes a village and to use us, right? Like we're here to be helpful. All the centers around the United States that I know of are there to be helpful. We don't want parents to be floundering. Mm -hmm. Um, There's tons and tons of support groups, whether they're national support groups, more local support groups, we all have all this information so we want to make sure it gets into the hands of families so that they can use it.
0: Great, and just lastly, you know the. Um, so, if anyone wants to find out more about the Marcus Center or any of its affiliates, where where would they go to? Uh, what's the best way to find out about that?
1: Sure, they can visit our website. It's Marcus. Oh gosh, now I have to look. Kelly, you're going to have tell me what it is. MarcusAutismCenter.org. Um, it's owned by Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, mm-hmm. so you can okay. also find us through Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Marcus Autism Center it's marcus.org actually marcus.org, <laughs> yeah, marcus.org. okay good.
0: it's good to have our p- a public relations person on <laughs> okay. on call Sorry, i
1: couldn't find my unmute button fast enough <laughs>
0: okay that's good
1: <laughs> thank you all right so you well, can find out information about us and we certainly put up resources to help families um as well
0: okay well dr clayman thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule i think this is so important unfortunately autism it seems so prevalent. I know here in Long Island, in New York, it seems a little bit almost like an epidemic. And uh, I feel for the, the my patients and the families that are trying to do the best that they can. And, and obviously any extra information that helps is very important. So thank you.